With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. It's been a dramatic week in China's financial circles. Let's start with the downfall of Xiang Junbo, head of the China Insurance Regulatory Commission. Xiang was placed under investigation over graft on Sunday, April 9th. Xiang is one of the most colorful financial regulators in China. He's been a screenwriter and fought in China's war with Vietnam in the late 1970s. He now holds the distinction of being the highest-ranking incumbent financial official to be caught in the anti-graft campaign initiated by Xi Jinping. More about him later in the podcast. As you might know, there are four pillars of China's financial regulatory world for top supervisory bodies, the so-called Yihang Sanhui. There's the central bank in the middle and three regulatory commissions covering banking, securities, and insurance. While the head of the insurance regulator, Xiang Junbo, is under investigation, the banking commission has also removed its assistant chairman, Yang Jiacai, this week. Early this week, Yang was missing from all public events, and the commission has said he is no longer supervising operations there. It's very unusual to have an official suddenly relieved of duty. Coupled with Shang's investigation, there is indeed a legal and disciplinary storm brewing in China's financial arena. Meanwhile, the campaign to reduce financial risks continues. One example of such risks is the new type of consumer finance firms. Since the first such firm was set up in 2010, there are now a total of 20 of them. Compared to other financial institutions, they have higher non-performing loan risks and lower standards of lending scrutiny. Regulators have struggled to rein in risk in this personal loan industry, and actually many of these firms operate without licenses and some use unorthodox methods to collect debt, including holding nude photos of borrowers as guarantees in some campus loan scandals. Read Caixin to learn more about China's financial risks. Several high-profile M&A deals were inked this week. The $43 billion ChemChina Sygenda deal was okayed by the Chinese government after a swift antitrust review by China's Commerce Ministry, which removed all regulatory hurdles. And a Chinese consortium finally got its hands on legendary Italian soccer team AC Milan, ending an eight-month negotiation. The deal is worth 740 million euros. The consortium is led by a businessman named Li Yonghong. It's the latest chapter in a spate of Chinese acquisitions of overseas soccer clubs since 2015. Dalian Wanda, which is owned by billionaire Wang Jianling, 
bought 20% of Spanish soccer club Atletico Madrid, and China Media Capital Holdings acquired a 13% stake in the owner of the Manchester City soccer franchise. The frenzy, however, has started to lose steam as China has tightened up controls over foreign exchange and securities regulators repeatedly warned against irrational overseas investments, including those in the sports sector. Many international media outlets have reviewed Myanmar's one-year performance since Aung San Suu Kyi took power in 2016. Just this week, an oil pipeline running through Myanmar into China finally opened. This pipeline has been closely watched for its strategic importance. It can help China, currently the world's second-largest oil consumer, to reduce dependence on oil shipments through the contested South China Sea and the piracy-plagued Straits of Malacca. After its completion, finalization of the agreement has been delayed because of political turbulence and environmental issues. Finally kicking off this project is obviously a win for Xi Jinping's signature One Belt, One Road initiative. With all eyes on North Korea this weekend, another potential flashpoint between China and the U.S. has been resolved, as U.S. President Donald Trump said he's changed his mind and will not label China a currency manipulator. The gesture was immediately echoed with goodwill. The Chinese government said it will not attempt to boost exports through currency devaluation. Obviously, the currency issue was among the many issues being sorted out during the Xi and Trump meeting in Florida. Let's wait and see how North Korea will change the dynamic. On the tech front, China's homegrown PC giant Lenovo ended a three-year reign as the world's largest seller of personal computers, surrendering its crown to HP. Also in the news is Ant Financial, the fast-growing fintech company affiliated with Alibaba, which declared a couple of weeks ago, mysteriously, that it is no longer a fintech company, but rather a tech fin company. We have no idea what the difference is. In any case, Ant Financial dialed up the rhetoric with its rival Euronet Worldwide in a bidding war for U.S. money transfer specialist MoneyGram. Ant Financial has accused Euronet Worldwide of playing on xenophobia. And Starbucks executive chairman Howard Schultz was in China, one of its fastest-growing markets, this week, where he announced that the global coffee juggernaut will extend health insurance coverage to Chinese employees' parents, winning hearts and minds in the rapidly aging society. Let's talk about this last item with Doug Young, columnist for Caixin and editor recently of a piece about Schultz's visit. Doug, tell us about this announcement. Well, the story is that Starbucks has decided uh, they want to do a little bit of PR. They want to show they're giving back to the community. And what they've announced is this new program that extends health insurance to their employees' elderly parents. I think it's if they're over age 60. And it specifically covers the parents just in the event that they become critically ill. So it doesn't just provide day-to-day coverage. And I think it's meant to be a supplement to the national health plan because a lot of these elderly get basic care from China's health care, national health care plan. But a lot of times when people get critically ill, it puts a huge strain on family budgets. A lot of times there's not money to cover it. And, you know, as a result, they don't get the care they should get. And sometimes if they do manage to get it, the family goes into huge debt and it just causes all kinds of problems. How much is this going to cost Starbucks, and, and what about the insurer? And, and what is Starbucks' motive for doing this? From a cost perspective, Starbucks is huge. They do booming business in China, and I'm sure they're working through a third-party insurer, so it's not like they're going to be paying out this amount of money. 
And they did say in the announcement it will make 10,000 parents eligible for coverage. So it's not a huge number. And you're right, out of these 10,000, maybe every year, 15 or 20 or maybe 50 even uh, might require the coverage. So I think from a purely monetary standpoint, it's probably not that bad. And since they're probably going through a third-party insurer, catastrophic coverage tends to be relatively cheap because you'd only use it in a, a really catastrophic situation, which don't happen every day. So from a cost perspective, I don't think it's going to be that bad for Starbucks. Uh, in terms of the second question, whether or not this is a PR move, it's obviously a PR move, but I think companies that do business in China and, and Starbucks especially realize that you need to be seen as contributing to the community doing a service and not just be coming in and selling your product to millions of Chinese. The, the Chinese media are famous for sort of being critical of Western companies that come in and don't really do much. Apple took a lot of heat in the past for not contributing enough to China. So Starbucks is being very proactive about this. They've done some other stuff. They, they're doing a big coffee planting project down in Yunnan to, to develop Yunnan coffee into world-class coffee. And they made a big splash about that and told the world about it. And the same way they're doing with this particular campaign, telling everybody, hey, look, this aging population in China is a big issue. And a lot of people are concerned, especially a lot of families have only one child. So it's one child looking after two elderly parents. A lot of times the parents are on relatively modest incomes, these pensions, so, you know, they're playing to a cause that's probably quite popular in China. Thanks a lot, Doug. Before we go on to this week's news story selection, let's talk to Purnima Wirasakara, who edited a piece this week on the potential environmental impact of the new Xiong'an Special Economic Zone, the new city that Beijing has recently announced. Purnima, Caixin has covered Xiong'an a lot recently. It's China's latest big development project. Basically, they're building a sort of second capital in rural land just a few hours from Beijing. What is the issue in this story? So the main issue that is being raised in our article is that China's latest economic zone is being placed in a very environmentally sensitive area close to northern China's largest wetland. And while some analysts say that it might actually dry up the wetland, completely destroy an area that has been named as the kidneys of northern China, officials are saying, hey, no. This is actually an opportunity to clean up the wetland that has been polluted by toxic waste that has been dumped by hundreds of factories upstream, aluminium producers, copper smelters. This is an opportunity to clean up the wetland, revive it, and then create a vibrant economic zone around it. Now, there is this ongoing debate with environmentalists saying, if this project is not handled delicately, it could destroy an ecosystem that has served not just Hebei province, but northern China for a long period. Planners, on the other hand, say that it's an opportunity to clean up. But the problem is they haven't come up with any concrete steps on how they're going to approach this problem. And some of the ideas that they're suggesting in terms of pumping water to this wetland from adjoining areas, clamping down on polluting factories, these things have been tried by the local government for several years and they haven't proven to be successful. We have a, an expert here who says that the area is too dry. They have had droughts and the water table has already depleted. 
and that is also the main concern of these environmentalists. What they're saying is the three rural counties that have been selected to build this new economic zone called the Shongan New Area. It only has a population of 1.3 million people. But once this special economic zone comes in, the population is expected to more than double and even cross the 5 million mark. When that happens, more groundwater has to be pumped out and that is going to put an enormous pressure on the already overstretched water resources in the region. Thanks, Purnima. And now onto our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll tell you more about the removal of a top official at the CBRC, the China Banking Regulatory Commission, about why Beijing residents are up in arms over that white fluffy stuff that fills the capital skies each spring, and about how artificial intelligence has mastered Texas Hold'em and beaten China's top poker players. Lastly, we've got an op-ed for you on the challenges foreigners face when doing business in lower-tier Chinese cities. Finance, April 14, 2017. Beijing. Senior official at China's banking watchdog relieved of duties by Wu Hong Yuran, Wang Yichen, and Wu Gang. A senior official of the China Banking Regulatory Commission has been relieved of his duties while a high-profile corruption investigation of the insurance watchdog's chairman is underway. Authorities haven't given an official explanation for the absence of the senior official, CBRC Assistant Chairman Yang Jiatsai, who hasn't shown up to work this week, people with knowledge of the matter told Caixin. The Communist Party's Central Commission for Discipline Inspection had said on Sunday that Xiang Junbo, the head of the China Insurance Regulatory Commission, is being investigated for, quote, serious disciplinary violations, unquote, a common Communist Party euphemism for corruption. Xiang is the highest-ranking official of a financial supervisory body to be caught up in the anti-graft campaign launched by President Xi Jinping in 2012. The Inspection Commission launched an investigation a year ago into corporate raids by insurers that were funded by high-risk, high-yield policies under liberal rules introduced under Xiang's watch. Yang was no longer supervising operations at the banking regulator as of Monday, the sources within the CBRC said. Caixin reporters' calls to Yang's cell phone have not been returned. Before the change, Yang... 56, had been simultaneously in charge of several functions at the CBRC, including the General Office, Human Resources, and the Department of Non-Bank Financial Institutions Regulation. These duties have been taken over by Vice Chairman Cao Yu, the sources said. People in different departments in the CBRC offered different accounts to Caixin about Yang's whereabouts. One said that he went to participate in a, quote, special task, unquote, with the central government. The other said he left to attend a central government study program. It also suggested that he is on a business trip. The CBRC's press department has not responded to Caixin's inquiry for clarification. Yang last appeared at a CBRC news conference on April 7th to talk about the regulator's supervisory tasks this year. He interacted comfortably with the reporters. The CBRC is a government watchdog. The media is a market watchdog. We are all watchdogs, he said. Yang began work at the People's Bank of China in 1988. He moved to the CBRC in 2003 when the banking supervisory function was separated out of the central bank. He was promoted to assistant chairman in 2013. Although authorities have not said what exactly Xiang is being investigated for, just three hours after the announcement of his fall, the Chinese government's website published the full text of Premier Li Keqiang's speech in an anti-corruption meeting in late March. 
Lee emphasized that the authorities will seriously punish government supervisors who collude with company executives and financial crocodiles to make illegal gains. More drama is expected, the People's Daily said in an analysis article on its social media on Monday, commenting on the timing of the release of Lee's speech. Environment, April 13, 2017. Beijing tree pruners, algae sufferers, stage poplar revolt. By Wu Meiwei, Zhou Chen, and Li Rongde. Beijing. This spring, gardeners armed with pruning shears and sterilization shots are roaming the streets of Beijing, hunting for the number one enemy of the people poplar and willow trees that shed pollen, clogging both noses and vehicle radiators. The city's landscaping authority has declared war, saying it wants to stop two million trees from shedding pollen through sterilization and other means by 2020. The Chinese capital is covered in snowflake-like pollen for seven to ten days in April each year. Exposure to it can lead to skin rashes, allergies, coughing, and other respiratory problems, according to the Beijing Municipal Bureau of Landscape and Forestry. Pollen can also cause fire hazards or traffic accidents by blocking vehicle radiators. The Bureau started spraying trees with water cannons to remove blossoms and nip the problem in the bud several years ago, but calls from weary residents to take down the trees or replace them with other species have been growing louder in recent years. Poplar and willow trees were planted en masse in the capital in the 1960s and 1970s because they were considered a cheap way to green the city. The species grew faster and cost less to maintain compared to alternatives such as ginkgo trees. But in hindsight, that may have proved to be the wrong choice. The Forestry Bureau says it plans to sterilize or remove blossoms from 400,000 trees this year. These efforts won't make pollen from female poplar and willow trees totally disappear, but it will not create any nuisance or pose hazards to the public by 2020, a statement on Wednesday from the Forestry Bureau said. Critics of the move, like Shen Guofang, a member of the Chinese Academy of Engineering, say benefits from these trees far outweigh the inconvenience and potential hazard from pollen. Willow and poplar trees are known to absorb more carbon dioxide and help clean the air. And to take down the trees in one clean swoop will not only leave ugly vacant spots in the city, but will hurt the existing ecosystem, he warned. Workers on ladders injecting trees with chemicals to stop them from flowering have become a common sight in the Chinese capital in recent weeks, but only 50,000 willow trees have been sterilized so far due to cost constraints, according to Che Shaochen, head of a unit overseeing plant conservation at the Beijing Institute of Landscape Architecture. The government did not say how much it costs to sterilize a tree. Business and Tech, April 10, 2017. China's star poker players fold against Smart Machine by Coco Feng. Chalk up another win for the machines in their battle against humans, this time with six top Chinese poker players being walloped in a five-day Texas Hold'em extravaganza. The most challenging part during the game was to control my emotions, Xu Chaojun, one of the six Chinese players, told Cai Xin. Intelligence is not a problem, Xu said. 
Lengpu Dashi or Cold Poker Master might disagree on how much managing emotions versus raw intelligence led it to victory. But whatever the mix, the artificial intelligence AI program played 36,000 hands against the humans over the five-day event in southern China's Hainan Province. Lengpu Dashi ended up with 792,000 points, while all six humans owed chips. The victory follows machines beating top-rated humans in chess and the ancient Chinese game of Go. IBM's Deep Blue beat the then reigning world chess champion Gary Kasparov in their six-game match in 1997, and last year Google's AlphaGo shocked the world by scoring a four-to-one victory over Go master Li Sedol. Lengpu Dashi was developed by Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It is a version of Libratus, an artificial intelligence bot developed by the same team that, in January, became the first AI to beat four top poker pros in a 20-day tournament in Pittsburgh. In chess and Go, players see everything on the board. Not so with poker. No player knows precisely what cards the others have, and all players must be able to bluff and recognize their opponent's bluffs. Specifically, in Texas Hold'em, two whole cards are dealt to each player face down, and only the receiving player may see them. Each player also gets five community cards, which everyone can see in three stages. A player places bets based on what they believe is their best five-card hand with their available seven cards. I want to explore various commercial opportunities for this in poker and a host of other application areas, ranging from recreational games to business strategy to strategic pricing to cybersecurity and medicine. Thomas Sandholm, co-creator of Libratus Lengpudasher, with his doctoral student Noam Brown, said in a release. Li Kaifu, former Greater China president of Google Inc. and founder of venture capital firm Sinovation Ventures, one of the organizers of the showdown in Hainan, said the AI programs such as AlphaGo can help with stock trading, financial analysis, and investment banking. While technologies used in Texas Hold'em's AIs demonstrate the opportunity for machines to explore human feelings, which can be applied in commercial negotiation and even diplomacy. While Lengpu Dasha may have outsmarted its human challengers, it has one thing yet to figure out: how to spend its prize of 200 million yuan, 29 million dollars. Business and Tech, April 11th, 2017. Doing business in China, small towns stretch made in China label, snuggle up to imports. By Doug Young, Beijing. Anyone who has lived in China for a year or more is almost certainly familiar with the local concept of tiered cities, even though few of us know what actually defines such tiers. Regardless of the math, one universal truth is that doing business in these smaller cities is far different from the big ones. Imagine the Western equivalent: a big city businesswoman opens a slick new convenience store in small town USA, only to quickly discover her car is frequently ticketed, goods often get lost in the mail, and employees always call in sick. Then she discovers the sheriff's nephew just happens to own the local general goods store just a few blocks away. Such small town practices disappeared more than a decade ago in major cities like Beijing and Shanghai, and even most provincial capitals are now largely free of such backroom dealings. But the same isn't true for smaller Chinese towns, where guanxi or deeply embedded relationships often create hidden connections and conflicts that could easily sabotage an outsider's big business plans. 
A good friend in the drug sector opined that foreigners should probably avoid manufacturing in these smaller towns, or at least find a very good local go-between before making any such move. But he was quick to add that selling into these smaller markets is quite a different matter, and foreigners might even have advantages in such cases. Before we go any further, let's step back and take a quick look at just what exactly it means to be a small city in China. Although I've lived here for more than a decade, the only thing I knew with certainty about the frequently quoted tiered system is that Beijing and Shanghai are first-tier cities. I had a vague impression that provincial capitals like Chengdu and Sichuan might be second-tier cities, but wasn't quite sure. A little web browsing led me to a very nice graphic tool developed by Hong Kong's South China Morning Post, which explains that cities are rated in three ways, by population, gross domestic product, GDP, and politics. For example, Tier 1 cities must have more than 15 million people, GDPs of more than $300 billion, and generally report directly to the central government. There are just four possible tiers in the system, and only Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Chongqing, and Guangzhou meet the qualifications for first-tier cities in all three classifications. A look at the national map nicely shows that the vast majority of China falls into the lowest Tier 3 and Tier 4 categories, meaning this is perhaps one of the biggest business opportunities out there. Indeed, big companies frequently talk of the huge potential of selling to these smaller markets, and anyone from Alibaba down to Coca-Cola has its own strategy for marketing to these smaller cities. My pharmaceutical friend was quite positive on the potential for selling into these markets, saying both Chinese and foreigners are generally welcomed due to their ability to create jobs, rent local offices, and create other economic activity. He added that foreigners may even enjoy a slight advantage over Chinese businesses since they are often automatically more trusted. But he and others say the situation quickly changes when it comes to manufacturing, which brings us back to my U.S. small-town scenario. He cited a specific case in which a peer agreed to buy a factory making traditional Chinese medicines in small-town Sichuan, only to discover that the factory hadn't ever formally transferred its land from agricultural to industrial use. Without making such a transfer, it couldn't get an official permit to actually operate a factory on the land, meaning it had been operating illegally for its entire existence. Of course, none of that mattered, since the factory had close connections with the local government, which was happy to allow things to proceed without all the official permits. But the buyer needed to complete those processes before it felt comfortable closing the deal, and the local government was quite happy to help out. As a result, everything got done in just about the same amount of time it would have in a big city like Beijing, and even cost a little less because local officials helped the buyer tap various government incentives and other preferential policies. In some cases, the local angle can also become outright dangerous, as was conveyed in another tale told by an acquaintance who advises investors from his boutique firm Grapevine Asia in Shanghai. That case saw a client win control of some assets from a former business partner in Fujian province after some litigation. But when he tried to take possession of those assets, he met with some resistance from local police, who also happened to be close to the Fujian businessman. In the end, everything worked out, though the foreigner quickly learned a new lesson in small-town business dealings. The bottom line is that doing business in China's third- and fourth-tier cities can be quite lucrative for foreigners looking to sell their wares into these markets, but can be more problematic for those looking to tap lower costs and preferential policies often attached to such locations. That's likely to change over time as these smaller towns gradually get pulled into the 21st century. But in the meantime, it's worth remembering that these markets deserve their own separate sales and manufacturing strategies. 
That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll give us a listen every week and help spread the word. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com. The Caixin Sinica Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Sinica Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. We are now in our eighth year and we have a terrific lineup of shows. And be sure to follow the news from China Daily at SubChina through our free email newsletter, our new redesigned smartphone app, and at our website, subchina.com. Take care.